Podo. Welcome to the Ned Lard Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. Welcome. I have one vice as a man. I enjoy reading J.K. Rowling's enormous detective novels. In the most recent one, The Running Grave, and don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it for you, a plot point revolves around the desecration of the detective, Cormoran Strikes, Wikipedia page. A pissed-off adversary invents an alcohol problem, domestic abuse claims, and other fallacies designed to discredit the detective. Not only that, but they create a page for his partner, Robin, simply to proceed to libel her through that. Now, some people might be asking why I'm prattling on about a a minor plot point from a thousand-page detective novel. But the reason is simple. It's a storyline that defies reality. In actuality, Wikipedia, the collaborative encyclopedia project founded by Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger in 2001, has proven remarkably resilient to dis- and misinformation. While it's open to edit and members of the public are encouraged to get involved... It's actively policed by its community of editors. Make an unsubstantiated and libelous claim and you can expect it to be quickly removed. And don't even think about creating a page for someone who fails to meet Wikipedia's requirements for noteworthiness. So I'm sorry, but both Strike and Robin have nothing to worry about. Elon Musk, on the other hand. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Musk jokingly claimed to offer a billion dollars which is kind of Musk chump change, if the site changed its name to Dickipedia. The businessman and aspirant comedian who's also offered a similar fee to Facebook if it becomes uh, Faceboob, was replying to Jimmy Wales, who had tweeted a criticism of Musk's handling of Twitter in recent months. Fast-moving claims and counterclaims, Wales said, presumably referring to the ongoing crisis in the Middle East, And at Elon Musk has removed all the core features that make it even remotely possible to tell real journalists from fakes. Now, Musk responded to this with a series of insults, including the idea that Wikipedia is inefficiently run and panhandles to its community. And I'm someone who couldn't even program a Tamagotchi. But I can see that Wikipedia is enormously complicated and the server requirements must be necessarily vast. And we'll have more on that later in this episode. But fundamentally, Wales and Musk were engaging in a tit-for-tat that highlighted the difference in their platforms. For over 20 years, Wikipedia has managed to maintain a perceived neutrality. Through Brexit and Trump, through all the conflagrations and conflicts that have been waged in the 21st century, Wikipedia's integrity has rarely been impugned. I mentioned this to Ned uh, to get their response, and they sent me this, the third instalment of their manifesto. I received it via voice notes who have used distortion to protect their identity. The right to knowledge, if it is known, then it is known. The right to knowledge extends to all peoples regardless of race, class, age, or geography. The attempt to gatekeep knowledge is a construct of the ruling class and must be overcome. The internet is the greatest redistribution mechanism for knowledge that the world has ever invented. It is like Gutenberg's printing press on anabolic steroids. But the right to knowledge comes with the necessity of screening that knowledge for inaccuracies and falsehood. This is one of the great challenges of the internet age. But first we need to tear down the walls that exist between consumers of knowledge and that knowledge itself. Long live Aaron Schwartz, 
I'm starting to realise that the manifesto Ned and I are writing is not in a particularly cohesive or linear order. It's taking a bit too much of a leaf out of the Unabomber's book, but uh, well. Anyway, I wanted to talk about Wikipedia today. Not because I think it's under any real threat from Elon Musk, who is about to be named Dickipedia. Instead, I wanted to talk about it because I think it's something of subtly profound importance to the internet age. As Ned says, knowledge is very, very key to everything we do. In a moment, you're going to hear me speaking to Alex Hollander, who was a staff member at the Wikimedia Foundation, the non-profit that runs the show. He led the 2023 redesign of Wikipedia. We're going to talk about what it's like to work for the online encyclopedia, what makes it great, and how you build something with a view to it being accessed by as many people as possible. How do you stop the tool becoming political? I think the conversation is really valuable for anyone interested in the creation of a tool like Wikipedia, but also for designers and developers curious about how to subtly tweak the user experience and how UX can change how we experience a site. Anyway, here's the conversation. Yes, I am in the Lower East Side of Manhattan and it is 10.03 a.m. Now, you used to work for Wikimedia Foundation, is that right? The kind of the overarching company that, is it a company or is it a charity foundation? Yeah, we, charitableness. we say organization, I guess, because it's a nonprofit. Um, but yes, that's right. For the past almost five and a half years, I was a staff member over there. And that, for people who don't get it from the name, is the organization that runs Wikipedia. And, you know, this is a podcast in which I've talked a lot about all my skepticisms about technology and you know where it's going and whether it's good for us as human beings and I sort of want to do something maybe a little bit different today which is talk about Wikipedia which is a which is a product that I I really like and I've found really useful over the years and which I think is important in a way that it makes knowledge accessible and it equalizes and and doesn't penalize people who maybe don't have access to some of the educational advantages that you know, people in New York and London and et cetera, take for granted. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a, for me, it feels like a good piece of technology. Alex, you, you worked for a few years on the redesign of the interface, the kind of the, the, from the UX perspective. Can you just talk to me about the genesis of that project? Cause it feels like Wikipedia has a very distinctive, very iconic look and it hasn't changed much over the years. So when you came on board and you were started to, to think about adapting it, evolving it for the 21st century, not that it was ever for the 20th century, I guess, but, um, but what, were your, what were your priorities there? Right. Yeah. So just as a bit of context, we are at the foundation, I guess at this point, it's more like they are, but it's, it's a pretty small team. And so uh, resources wise, you know, we don't really have the ability to work on all the different things that we would like to at any given point in time. And we had been really focused on the mobile website, our team, which is the the reading team. So we kind of handle the reading experience of Wikipedia as opposed to maybe the editing experience or more of the community and like new users and growth experience. Um, so we we were, you know, responsible for the reading experience and we'd been focusing pretty much exclusively on the mobile website, which 
I think uh, was the right decision for a long time because we were actually at a point where we were seeing more than 50% of our traffic coming through the mobile website. You were kind of talking about equity and access earlier. And I think the reality, as I understand it, is that in in sort of some of the, the developing world uh, nations, people are less likely to have a laptop computer. They're much more likely mm. to have a, a, a smartphone than a laptop or a desktop. And so one of the projects we had done was like, um, yeah, making it easier. Actually, this this was, I guess, breaking a little bit outside of the realm of reading, but making it easier for people to edit articles from their smartphones, which is like critically important. You know, if, yeah, you're, you're reading Wikipedia in a, in a language and you don't have a laptop and you want to be able to contribute. And, and I guess that speaks to maybe the way that Wikipedia was probably originally designed to be like a browser-based resource and maybe over the years with the smartphone becoming so ubiquitous they're kind of as you say more than 50 percent of reading on smartphones maybe you know that's something that needs to be addressed more urgently right exactly so that that kind of sets the stage a little bit for what our team was focusing on and where our energy and attention was and then yeah it's it's kind of an interesting thing how the project came about i think in in a bunch of senses, it was sort of this opportunistic, uh, yeah, just sort of event where the design director at the time was just kind of aware of the fact that the the website, the desktop, you know, site hadn't been updated in a while and maybe for people, younger people or people in other parts of the world who didn't grow up with Wikipedia and they didn't necessarily have that kind of like nostalgic association. Um, it, it just maybe looked a bit dated. It looked sort of unfamiliar and even in, in some more practical ways was not maybe as usable as some of the websites that that they were, you know, otherwise using. Um, so yeah, we we sort of began to wonder about that. And again, I think kind of almost everything we do co- does come back to this sort of like knowledge equity question. Um, so yeah, it's this like, okay, it's working really well. It's been working really well for a lot of people who have been using it, you know, for 10 or 20 years now. But what about all these other folks? You know, when they show up at Wikipedia, does it feel familiar? Does it feel welcoming to them? Do they sort of know how to use the site? Do they understand what the site is? Maybe to some folks, it looks like a website that that hasn't been updated in a really long time. And maybe, therefore, they're going to doubt the content a little bit more. And I think... So, so that was part of the perspective is like thinking about these sort of newer users coming to the site and what their experience might be and not wanting to alienate anyone. And then I think just across the board for anyone using the site, new or experienced users, there was just a lot of um, sort of modern web 
best practices that we just really weren't taking advantage of. I mean, at the time when the site was built, uh, you know, over 20 years ago, it would have been really difficult to to sort of have an element stay like visible as a side panel or something like as you scroll down the page. Mm-hmm. And now that's like a very trivial thing to do. Um, so the table of contents, which is like this really critical element, was only available at the top of the page. And once you scrolled past it, or you clicked a link in it, and you got sent somewhere way down the page, if you wanted to get back to the table of contents, you got to go all the way back up to the top of the page, which could be a lot of scrolling. Um, but yeah, so so there were like little kind of user experience things like that, um, that, you know, showing pictures along with search results, small things like that, that are now like totally trivial and easy for us to do. And we just weren't doing any of that stuff. Um, and, and I guess the last thing I'll say really quickly is also in these intervening years between when the site kind of got a, a big update sort of around like, it was like 2004 or so, um, computer screens got a lot bigger. And the the site was built at a time where computer screens were pretty small. and so the change in size of the screen also just had some implications for a sort of like layout and design stuff and wanting to make sure that the the content wasn't just getting stretched out to kind of an unreasonable width, which actually isn't super great for reading. Okay. And then the, the redesign was rolled out earlier this year. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think uh, it it came to English Wikipedia around uh, the end of January, and almost all of the sort of three hundred or so uh, Wikipedia's are now using the the updated site. Yeah, there'll be people who are listening to this, I'm sure, who are thinking, "What redesign?" Who won't have noticed it because you know, <laughs> compared to Twitter or Facebook and all these things, who iterate every few years, they have this you know, redesign and everyone goes into meltdown being like, I can't imagine how I could ever possibly use it like this again. My whole life is ruined. And then a few weeks later, I guess they've been Stockholm syndromed into 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 finding it completely normal. The, the Wikipedia redesign was actually very modest. It had a sort of basis of visual simplicity that I think is maybe the core of the, the Wikipedia brand. Were you guys conscious of trying not to do anything too radically different from what had been the kind of established practice was there any ideological impulse for keeping things quite simple yeah i think there was um an awareness of that and i think probably more so i think a lot of these redesigns are opportunities to kind of re-express a brand or sort of update a brand and and there's a certain amount of kind of like marketing or other influences kind of going on there. You know, maybe you like pick a new color or you're rolling out a new logo and you're really trying to keep the the sort of brand side of things fresh. And that was really not at all a concern or uh, a sort of goal for us here. This was like a very strictly functional update where we're just asking the question like how can we make the experience of reading a wikipedia article 
or searching for Wikipedia articles or even editing to a certain extent, but how can we make those experiences better from a functional perspective in ways we can measure? Um, the brand is, is this really interesting thing, which in some ways you could say is kind of like a non-brand or something, but I think that's mostly expressed through all of the blue links on the page and the way that info boxes look. And yeah, people are familiar with the logo to a certain extent, but anyways, yeah. So, so on one hand, we were consciously aware of like, yeah, we don't want to do anything too radical, but I think more so it was just like, that wasn't that that wasn't really on the table just based on how we were approaching the project like it wouldn't have really led us there i mean we did experiment a bit and and try to you know break out of certain i guess like layout uh sort of patterns and things like that but ultimately none of that stuff really made any sense so yeah, it's it's quite subtle. A lot of I, yeah, I think you're right. Most people have not noticed it. Um, there was a bit of a sort of outcry on Twitter, mostly related to you know what people some people think of as like wasted space or something because we added a, a max width to the line length. But yeah, we were super happy when we saw some articles come out that were like the Wikipedia redesign that no one will notice or, right. you know, the barely noticeable, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was like, that was kind of, uh, yeah, great, great feedback. I suppose it speaks also to the the kind of clarity of purpose that Wikipedia has in the sense that you're not constantly integrating new features. You're not tr trying to become something slightly different to what you were. If you look at the difference in functionality between Facebook now versus the original Facebook, then of course, necessarily there will have to be huge structural changes. Whereas Wikipedia has always had a kind of relatively narrow lane, albeit a very important, a big one, and it's kind of stuck to it. I think often about this time when I was at university, when I was in a um, in a book club, and, and we were asked to go around in in, in, a, in a group and our, and everyone say what they thought the the greatest achievement in, in human history was, and everyone was picking out you know like penicillin, you know eradicating smallpox, all of those kind of obvious things, aviation, and you know someone I knew at the time who's now um, a professional philosopher, shout out to him, he chose Wikipedia, Wikipedia as the as the kind of the sum product of human achievement which I found kind of funny at the time, but now increasingly I find it, you know, a, a kind of relatively convincing argument. And I, as someone who's been there in the kind of the, in the bowels, the belly of the, uh, of the Wikimedia movement, do you think that Wikipedia could come to life now? Or do you think it's very symptomatic of kind of the ethos that governed the early internet, where things were collaborative, where things were impartial, where things were maybe not for profit? Do you think now the demands of the current internet, whatever it, whatever iteration of web 2.0, whatever we're on, do you think that would make Wikipedia unviable? Or do you think there's always a always a room for something like this? Yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think right, we we maybe tend to think that we're we're so far gone now into this world where people only you know, operate off of kind of commercial interests or self-interested motives. And, and we're like, so 
deeply post-industrialized that everything's you know being monetized and marketed and and whatever and i think to a large extent a lot of that has happened um but i think yeah i, I mean i'm definitely surprised not only by wikipedia editors and their incentives and their motives but also looking at other corners of the internet or other kind of hobbyist groups or other sorts of projects with a kindred spirit. I think I think there are still, you know, people out there in the world who are interested in volunteering their time mm. towards some sort of more like wholesome, you know, altruistic mission. Um, maybe there are less people and maybe because these uh, corporations, especially within the tech world, are so kind of like dominant and ubiquitous that that might kind of uh, have effect. You know, maybe in this modern world, it's like if this project had gotten started, you know, two years into it, they would have had an offer. They would have had an offer to be acquired by some tech company or something like that. And so maybe that would have changed the course. Uh, but in terms of like individuals out there who are willing to do the work and I think, yeah, we could say like shout out to to all of the thousands of incredible Wikipedia editors who day in, day out are are doing that. Um, I think there there are people like that still out there. And yeah, maybe it's just a bit more tricky now to kind of mm. figure out how those people come together and maybe resist some of those sort of like, uh, I don't know, forces or something like that and, and get a project like this started. I definitely agree. I mean, I, I think the internet is sort of unequivocally built on this unpaid labor. We saw that in what happened at Reddit just a, you know, a few couple of months ago from the time that we're recording this, where the mods went on strike when there were API changes that they felt were inhibiting their ability to use the site. And you know, it kind of made clear that Reddit is actually a for-profit service, which is underpinned by an enormous amount of volunteer labor. I guess the difference with Wikipedia, to some extent, is that in the time between its genesis and the present day, there's been a huge pressure put on knowledge and the impartiality and the unquestionability of knowledge as a resource. And I think it's kind of amazing how Wikipedia has managed to retain its impartiality mm. how vexing is this question of of you know impartiality misinformation all of these issues that the media is is grappling with how how pressing is that within wikimedia towers i mean it's it's always been uh one of the sort of top questions or concerns and i think what's really interesting and what i've never even taken the time to fully do is you know, Wikipedia is one critical piece of our sort of like knowledge ecosystem, right? But interestingly, Wikipedia is not a place where knowledge is actually being sort of produced or documented for the first time. Wikipedia as an encyclopedia is is really a collection of all the knowledge that we as whatever, a species or civilization, however you want to think about it, have sort of documented um, 
elsewhere, really. So the question of information on Wikipedia and credibility and and that sort of stuff really comes down to what sources are allowed to be cited in Wikipedia articles. And I think it's actually fascinating. I mean, you can go on Wikipedia and you can look at the list of sources that you know are acceptable and you can even look at how that list has changed over time and i think one example i heard recently was forbes.com at some point in the past few years they started some new program where you could kind of pay to have a story written about you um, i think daily mail in in the uk is another example of a site that maybe once upon a time might have been seen as a credible source, but has sort of changed its focus over the years and gone for more kind of like clickbaity, sensationalist, sort of dramatized stories and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a critical question. It's It's probably one of the most fundamental questions is like, where can we reliably get information from to include in Wikipedia articles? And I think what would be really cool, and I've never seen it, although I'm sure someone's done a PhD or some kind of thesis, is like, yeah, zooming out a bit more and thinking about not only Wikipedia, which in a sense is kind of the end of the road for knowledge, right? It's like it's like this sort of place where after the knowledge has been discovered and documented and whatnot, you know, it kind of comes to rest in this like concise little collection of uh, facts and articles. But yeah, looking at that whole ecosystem, I think is really interesting. And it's like universities and researchers and media companies and who's out there actually like really documenting the knowledge in the first place. And what's this kind of whole system it goes through to then end up in our like you know, sort of like neatly bound book or something that, and it's not a book because it's constantly evolving and changing and growing. But, but yeah, I think that that's something that I don't know. I I almost wish people studied in school or that I had studied in school and that we really took a moment to pause and, and think like, yeah, how do we document knowledge as, you know, a, a civilization and whatnot? And what does that look like? I think it's striking what a good job Wikipedia has done of it over the years in that it's a resource that hasn't, you know, pissed off the right or the left, really. I mean, which is a sort of amazing. It must be the last thing on the Internet that hasn't hasn't had one of the one or two of those. I guess while we're on the subject of big questions burning at, at, at Wikipedia HQ, the question of AI is a big one. And it runs from one end where, you know, there's obviously these large language models being trained off a lot of data, in, including, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, Wikipedia as, a, as one of the biggest corpuses on the internet, right down to the, the other end of the spectrum, ChatGPT as a, as a potential competitor and, you know, existential threat to Wikipedia as a, as a impartial receptacle, a nice, as you put it, a nice sort of leather-bound volume that's constantly changing, sort of magic book. What's the inside story on how AI is going to impact Wikipedia in the coming years? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, and of course, like you know, no one really knows yet. Um, 
I, I think there's two aspects of it that are really interesting to me and that I've kind of heard talked about within the, the community. And I've read a bit of what some of the editors have published. Um, so the first part is like, again, what Wikipedia editors do is they pick a topic. Maybe it's a topic that's already on Wikipedia. Maybe it's a topic that's not yet on Wikipedia. And they go search the internet, libraries, whatever, and they collect information about this topic and they bring it back to Wikipedia and they kind of stitch it together into these coherent articles. Um, so, you know, is it possible that a computer could be given, you know, a specific task, a specific topic and say, hey, can you go read articles from the newyorktimes.com this journal, that thing, you know, this university's research, whatever, and, you know, bring back all of the the most relevant facts about, you know, I think that's totally possible. And I think some of the editors um, are already excited about the assistance that the AI will be able to give them, right? Because it's kind of a tiresome task, mm. just having to read through tons of articles, some of which might mention the topic, some of which might not. And, you know, it, there, there's no perfect science there. So that I think is really interesting. That's sort of like information retrieval. And, and then obviously you have to give it parameters. You have to say like, these are sources that we think are reliable and trustworthy. So we don't want you to just go find any information out there. We want you to limit your search to these specific things and, you know, yeah, see what you can find. Um, so that's one part that I think is really interesting. I think the other part, which is exciting is like everyone, you know, let's say you're, you're interested in the queen of England and I'm interested in the queen of England and, you know, 10 other people are too. There's, there's really no format that that article can have that's going to be perfectly suited towards whatever information you're looking for and I'm looking for and these other people. So inevitably, like you're going to scroll around a bunch. Maybe you're going to use the table of contents. Maybe this other person just wants to know, you know what her birthday was or something like that, and they find it right in the info box. But this question of like, how do you format an article? How short should a paragraph be? How long should it be? You know, how can you sort of meet the needs of each and every person? I think that's a really, really difficult thing to do, but I think it's something that the AI is actually really good at. You can sort of say like, okay, I'm trying to learn about the Queen of England and specifically what I'm interested in is X and maybe that information is actually scattered in a few different parts of the article and it can kind of pull some of that stuff together for you and give you this kind of like summary or something that really like meets your needs and anyway so they've created a chatbot plugin for for GPT where you can you can ask it things and it can only uh pull from Wikipedia articles and so that's that's more about the interface and that's more like mm -hmm. how do you format the knowledge and how do you 
sort of serve people the relevant bits and pieces that they're looking for, which, yeah, it, it's it's just a huge challenge um, because everyone's kind of reading with a slightly different lens or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. It, 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 the danger, I guess, is that you get into a situation where people cherry pick information or information is served to them in a way that's very specific to their demands and interests. And actually, the acquisition of knowledge is better served by deeper and contextual reading rather than that. But I understand that like, ultimately, little knowledge is, is, is better than no knowledge at all. And the easier we make things for people, the better. But you, you seem to imply there's a there's a kind of a cautious optimism. There's not a kind of existential doom hanging over Wikimedia Towers. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's sort of the impression that I've gotten. I think it was at first there was a lot of sort of defensiveness and a lot of like, oh my gosh, this thing is it's clearly flawed, it's clearly problematic, it's going to lead to a lot of problems and you know, I think a lot of those concerns still exist, but just yeah, the little bit that I've been able to to sort of pick up on in terms of that attitude changing is that people are like, huh, okay, well, maybe it's also, you know, a useful tool and maybe there's stuff we can do with it. And yeah, I think this question of sort of like trust and reliability and do you just have enough faith in you know, because yeah, at this point the the machines could go off by themselves and and probably assemble a pretty similar corpus of knowledge as Wikipedia. But I don't know. Maybe maybe we still want you know a bit of like human oversight, human intervention, kind of checking through things and and keeping an eye on things and whatnot. So I don't know. I think a lot of that also just comes down to our relationship and our like comfort level with these systems and machines and algorithms and stuff going forward. And I think the, to me, one of the ironic things is like, you know, people freak out about AI and other things. And, and I've definitely got my concerns, but I think there's already so much automation and so much sort of like AI already happening in ways that people just aren't as aware of. Um, and and now people are becoming more aware of it. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. But it's like, little did you know, this has been, you know, to a certain degree going on for a long time now behind the scenes. And it kind of governs, you know, what you end up buying on Amazon and other kinds of decisions you make about your life. And now we've just kind of given more of a name to it. And it's almost got like more of a personality. And it's, it's sort of like poked through the, the general sort of consciousness or something. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I definitely see it as more of a spectrum. And yeah, who, who's to say where we're, we're going to be a few years from now. But I would say, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that, that we can sort of harness it and control it and yeah help it you know ha have it help us uh in this kind of knowledge gathering endeavor all right well i i'll take that to mean that you know when the war with the robots comes that the staff of wikipedia will be on the side of the robots uh, it's one or the other <laughs> just finally then look, we've gone over time but what are you up to now you've left you've left wikimedia you're in new york which is 
where everything happens. So what are you up to? Yeah, I just moved back here, which I'm pretty excited about. Left after finishing that that big project. Um, I'm I'm trying to do something right now that's a bit more connected with something that I'm like personally interested in and passionate about. You know, as much as I've always loved Wikipedia, and before I worked there, I I was an editor to a certain extent and appreciated that. It was never something that I was like you know, personally very uh, enthusiastic about just as kind of like a hobby or a personal interest. Um, but yeah, so cooking is something that I've been really interested in for a while. And I've got all kinds of fantasies about opening a pizza restaurant one day, or more specifically, a, a pizza farm where we actually grow all of the ingredients for the pizza on the farm. And, and it's like this you know, hyper local, whatever experiment. Mm -hmm. But I think before I get there, I probably need to earn a little bit more money and kind of like have a bit more financial security. So right now, would your farm be in in New York? Is in your vision? Because that's I mean, that's, that's a real estate concern. Yeah, I, I, it wouldn't be in New York. I, I don't think I'm going to be in New York for too much longer, to be honest with you. My My two sort of favorite places in the world right now are up in Vermont, where I grew up, uh, which is just a bit north of New York, uh, very kind of rural, pastoral, woodsy, um, beautiful area. And then down in Puerto Rico, in this little town called Rincon, where I love to go and, and surf every winter. So yeah, both of those places uh, are challenging for different reasons. In Vermont, the season where you can grow things is is quite short, of course. And Vermont is not particularly well known for growing like wheat or other grains that you might need to make flour, mm -hmm. although people are doing it now, which is exciting. But yeah, so so cooking is a real interest of mine. And I follow a lot of uh, sort of like recipe bloggers and like recipe creators online. And I've always been a little frustrated or you know, felt that there there's something to be desired from the way recipes are presented online. I think just from sort of the 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 little user experience stuff to kind of the the way that ads appear and other things like that, I feel like there's probably a better better solution. And there are certainly some great sites out there that are are doing a better job than than kind of the the average experience but yeah so that's kind of what I'm working on I'm I'm working on this sort of tool for online recipe publishing and and then there's all sorts of tangents and other things that that kind of could connect with and lead to and I was actually just talking to a restaurant the other day and they're about to publish a cookbook and I was like oh yeah well you know this tool that I'm working on you could make a really beautiful sort of digital companion for your cookbook. And maybe when people buy the cookbook, they also have, you know, access to the, whatever. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm exploring that. And maybe most importantly, at least for my personal sort of happiness is I'm just cooking a lot more and, and that's sort of part of it. And that's a necessary part of it for me to feel engaged with the project and excited about it. And, 
yeah, so so pizza pizza is obviously a, a big theme for me, and that's what I've been focusing on the most lately. So you're sort of going into your entrepreneur phase as a way of sort of funding your Puerto Rican pizza farm. Um, <laughs> exactly, well. yeah. And it's interesting because, yeah, my, my dad has always been an entrepreneur and same for my older sister. So I've kind of been around that a lot. I actually once upon a time ran a clothing company and let's call it a t-shirt company uh, in college with a few friends of mine. So I've had a little bit of experience with it. And I know that for me, it's a very exciting, engaging, you know, as much as I like doing design and being in the details, and now I'm, I'm pretty into programming and really enjoy that as a kind of, you know, deep uh, sort of focused activity. I really enjoy the multidisciplinary nature of, yeah, kind of thinking about a whole business and how you might be able to get it started and make money and hire people and all of these different components that go into it. Um, So it's really fun. It's totally different than the work I've been doing. I mean, in some ways, you know, I'm still doing design work and user research and engineering like I've, I've been doing for other companies. But, but yeah, now I get to, to context switch a ton and have this broader perspective. And yeah, it's just a, it's a different sort of challenge. And I feel very energized by it and, and sort of excited. But yeah, ultimately, hopefully it will, it will lead me to the, the promised land of the pizza farm uh, at some point in the future. All roads lead to pizza. The Ned Ludd Radio Hour is a podo podcast written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The theme music is Internet Song by Apes of the State, used with their generous permission, and the artwork is by Tom Humberston. For all the socials for everything, go to nedludlives.com and spread the word on Twitter, X, whatever you call it, Instagram. I don't mind. Wherever you go. Wandered round our neighborhoods aimlessly, lighting shit and fire and smoking cigarettes.